Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you here with me. I'm coming to you uh, once again from uh, Northern California, where it is uh, almost sunny California, I think you could say today. Stanford University's uh, campus uh, here as a guest of the Hoover Institution. Uh, it is it is wonderful place. I very much enjoy my time in Northern California. Uh, but I miss all of you, so I'm excited that I get a chance to address you once again here on uh, on the air, and we have much to discuss, uh, as always. So, uh, just to give you a, a sense of where we're going, something of a roadmap of the show today, we will be discussing the infighting within the Democrat Party and the DNC. I'm not going to lie, it's it's amusing to see the Democrats tear each other down. They've been trying so hard at, and enjoying so much the uh, intramural strife of the Republican Party for the last, oh, 18 months or so, that I think watching the Democrats have their own uh, in-house problems is something that we are all both interested just interested to see and we want to know where it's going because there are important political implications, clearly important political implications from what is happening here. Essentially, is it still a Clintonite party or not? Is that ending or are we actually seeing that reassert itself. Well, we will get we will get there in a bit. Also, I couldn't believe it. Last night I was uh, having a, a an organic sustainable salad because I'm in Northern California and having some sushi grade seared tuna on my salad and I was just looking through some news stories you're going to do to get into today and I saw Harvey Weinstein's Army of Spies. And I thought to myself, "Oh, are we really we're, 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 we don't need the stories are so salacious already. We don't have to. We, we don't have to overstate, right? I mean, army of spies. Oh no, this reporting in the New Yorker is about an, an army of spies. I mean, it's about an army of former spies, if you believe uh, what's reported. Former. Uh, the, the article talks about former Mossad officers, and I'm just sitting here, and, and they're getting into their their trade craft and what they're doing to try and cover up. Weinstein's sexual predations. It is, it is an incredible read. I thought we had seen at this point m- most of the, the major stuff about Weinstein, or at least we, we were aware of the gravity of the situation now. I, I didn't suspect that there would be yet another chapter, which is that there weren't just people who were complicit in Weinstein's predatory behavior and and serial sexual harassment, assault, and, and up to and including allegations of rape, but that he had employed very skilled, very diligent, and pretty ruthless people in not just PR and the law, but that operate in the shadowy world of private intelligence, sort of like uh, the fusion GPSs of the world, right, which we will be talking about as well in the show. Uh, but I'm 
uh, getting a bit ahead of myself. I just want to give you a sense of where the discussion will be heading over the course of the show. Some very interesting revelations today about Fusion GPS and Russian lawyers and meetings uh, that occurred as well. And then we've got some fantastic guests joining later on in the show, and I'll give you my thoughts on the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik victory at St. Petersburg, which was the first day of control, communist control of the Soviet Union, 100 years ago today. Seize the railway stations and telegraph offices and government buildings of St. Petersburg. And my preview of where that discussion goes is just, it was the start of one of the most calamitous, you could argue based on the facts, based on the numbers, that the spark a hundred years ago into the the tinderbox of the Soviet Union that the Bolsheviks provided um, was the biggest calamity in the history of the human race. A hundred million people died directly as a result of communism. Generations enslaved, brutalized, murdered around the world. Think of all the uh, horrific revolutionary parties and conflicts that were really just excuses for totalitarianism and statism and oppression. And it goes to the very heart of what we, what we still need to fight in this country, which is collectivism, the rights of the individual, the relationship between man and God. That has to be sacred and at the center of all public life or else we have nothing or else it all disappears. But that will be later on in the show. First, uh, some some updates here on this terrible shooting in Texas. Uh, I want to focus on, I want to start with, I, I should say, the positive. Uh, I want to start with the hero. I, I watched uh, interviews with Stephen uh, Wilford, who was the man, a, a, an NRA instructor. Isn't it so interesting that the leftist media and celebrities and, and assorted loudmouth, big platform imbeciles out there blame the NRA for this mass shooting based on no evidence and based on nothing other than their antipathy, their hatred for the Second Amendment and for gun owners. They blame the NRA. And in fact, an NRA instructor intervened, put his life in jeopardy, put shots downrange and a shot on target into this evil mass murderer, uh, Devin Kelly, and very likely prevented, if not a a follow-on mass shooting, uh, there is, I think, an overwhelming likelihood of Devin Kelly getting into a, a final shootout with police. He wasn't wearing body armor because he was worried about what was going to happen to him, I think, inside the church. I think he was prepared to go down shooting against police officers and wanted to have an advantage against them. But tough to know what the uh, mind of a, of a deranged and evil, deranged and evil loser uh, would come up with in this scenario. But I, I want to focus on the hero and his humility, his clear religiosity, his relationship with God. Uh, these are all ideas that are certainly very much related, uh, his humility, his relationship with God, and his heroism. And he says he is not a hero. He most certainly is a hero. Um, but this reminds me of all, all of those who have been on the front lines in Iraq and Afghanistan. They always 
and many of them are friends of mine. They'll say, oh, I'm not a hero. Appreciate them saying it, but, but, they, act, but they are. So they're allowed to say they're not, but I'm here to say they are. And I'm also here to say that Stephen Wilford is a hero. Here is part of an interview he had about the incident where he chased down uh, Devin Kelly, who had just brutally murdered 26 people, including the elderly, babies, uh, a total psychopath. Um, but Stephen Wilford was the light in the darkness, and he took action. And here's what he had to say. Play clip one. I was scared for me, and I was scared for every one of them, and I was scared for my own family that just lived less than a block away. I, 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 I'm no hero. I, I am not. I think my God, my Lord, protected me and gave me the skills to do what needed to be done. And I just wish I could have gotten there faster. I understand his feeling there, or at least I can try to understand that he knows that if, if the timing had just been a little different, uh, he could have maybe gotten there even faster. And, but we're just so thankful that he got there at all. So thankful that he put himself in harm's way. I and mean, when you really try to get into the mindset of the hero here, the hero who not only is an NRA instructor, but who intervened with his AR-15 equipped with an EOTech site. So it was, an a- it was an NRA instructor with an AR that came to the rescue here. Not the way that most of the media is going to portray the event, but nonetheless, the truth of what happened. Uh, but when you think about those critical moments when he is deciding to take action, he is deciding to run, literally run toward the gunfire. And knowing that, well, actually, knowing what he does not know, which is, could be one shooter, could be three shooters. He doesn't know what kind of, he doesn't know what they've got. He doesn't know where they're set up. They might have been waiting in ambush for, the, for first responders, common tactic among terrorists. I know this guy's a psychopath and not a, um, like a jihadist terrorist, but that's a, a common ploy is to try to get the first responders. Who actually, they actually set up for that. But he didn't know. Stephen Wilford didn't know. He ran towards the gunfire with his AR, with the knowledge that he was skilled with firearms and that he was a patriot and, you know, and a father and a, and a husband and, and had to do what he had to do to try to save lives. Now, I, you know, you think about this in retrospect, and it's easy to skip over. He starts running towards that church with an AR. He doesn't know if law enforcement's going to think that he's part of the problem. They could make a mistake. They could think that he's not intervening to help, but that he is a part of the assault. I mean, it is when you really put yourself in the mindset of Stephen Wilford at that point in time, uh, who is putting himself in imminent jeopardy to save others, it's remarkable. And he was, he was very, in the interviews I saw with him, we played a little bit of one of them there for you, but he was very uh, collected about the whole situation. Says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he thought, at the time. That he knew he had to do this, he knew he had to go provide uh, provide aid and try to stop further loss of life so you have a a hero here um, and and also uh, the the gentleman who provided him a ride to go chase down Devin Kelly you know that guy's deciding uh, I mean I, I heard that whole storyline today in detail 
he's stopped at a, at a red light and some guy comes running over and says, we got to chase that guy down. And the guy who's jumping in your car has got an AR-15. You don't know who he is or what's going on, but another good Samaritan, another hero, did the right thing, took action, wanted to help people, wanted to save people. So amidst all this darkness and evil and, and moral rot and the psychological trauma that has afflicted our nation once again, it is important to also look at who we are. And uh, we are, as a country, Stephen Wilfords. We are good people who want to take care of each other, who want to protect one another, and want to do right by each other. And there will always be Devin Kellys. There will always be um, evil, and in this case, I think quite clearly, deeply disturbed. I mean, the, the circuitry was wrong with this guy. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a neuroscientist, but there were problems in the, uh, there were problems in his biochemistry as well. You know, this was a, a sick individual. And we find out more information about that today. Uh, we found out more about his background and what may have been possible to do to stop him. I, I will get into this, which is a, the takeaway of on the policy side, what we could look at now to stop a, a Devin Kelly or what was missed that could have stopped Devin Kelly. We'll talk about that. And then uh, I'll also give you some updates on just the left is going crazy once again, saying all the same stuff, but even louder than before. And it's uh, it's so politicized and so absent debate that is intended to affect the future in a positive way for all of us. It's just about smearing people that the left disagrees with on politics through the lens of gun control. Uh, so we'll get into that. But one, one more note on this. It should be noted before we get into the next segment that there is this loud call now for government intervention to stop the next Devin Kelly, to stop the next mass murder uh, shooting. But what we see is that it is, in fact... In this case, many government failures that could have stopped, you know, the the, the failure of government to act properly was one of the things that was missed here. That they want more government to fix this, but in reality, government failure uh, allowed this to happen because the government made mistakes. Government's made up of people. People make mistakes. Governments make even more mistakes because nobody's accountable. We'll get into that and much more right after this break. Uh, You've talked about wanting to put extreme vetting on people trying to come into the United States. But I wonder if you would consider extreme vetting for people trying to buy a gun. You know, you're bringing up a situation that probably shouldn't be discussed too much right now. We could let a little time go by, but it's okay if you feel that that's an appropriate question, even though we're the heart of South Korea. I will certainly answer your question. Uh, If you did what you're suggesting, there would have been no difference three days ago. And you might not have had that very brave person who happened to have a gun or a rifle in his truck go out and shoot him and hit him and neutralize him. And I can only say this, if he didn't have a gun, instead of having 26 dead, he would have had hundreds more dead. 
I think the president is overwhelmingly correct here. I mean, he, you can't know if there would have been hundreds more dead, but but certainly a shootout with police, I think, was inevitable. Um, and there's also we, – we don't know that the shooter may have planned a whole other – if someone is so sick and so evil that they are willing to shoot up a church and to go pew to pew, it, it, you know, it was hard reading about it. There's, it's – it is – and it's a rare thing, especially I think for those of us who uh, are in the are in the business of reading a lot about terrorism and uh, national security matters that deal with the the darkest uh, parts of of humanity. It's a rare thing to have to read something and find yourself uh, looking away because it's so painful. The description is so painful, but that's. That's how I felt last night looking at more of the details of this incident uh, down in Texas. It is hard, it is hard to read because it is even harder to, harder to imagine if you let your mind go there. Um, but certainly somebody who's willing to do that, willing to go and shoot men, women, children, babies, pew to pew in a church, is capable of anything. And his next stop could have been just the most crowded place he could find to kill as many people as possible just to up the body count because he was just about rage and he had embraced the darkness. He was evil. It was satanic. I, I, you know, the, it's interesting. The media tends to stay away from that description. I think we all understand why. But it was satanic. It was, it was an embrace of evil. And I have even read about... Uh, I have read about how psychiatrists find themselves sometimes after a, a lengthy series of interview sessions, whatever they call it, with uh, truly, uh, truly terrible you know, murderers and mass murderers, uh, that they run out of medical terminology to describe this, and they find themselves wanting to use – I remember reading about this years ago – they find themselves wanting to use the term evil – that that, that that is actually the most apt description, the, the choice to embrace the darkness, uh, to create a little hell here on earth for all the rest of us, that, that you know, walking hand in hand with Lucifer. I mean, these are, I, the, the media doesn't like those descriptions of it, but they've been around for a very long time, and we all know why. Uh, so an, an evil individual. I, I haven't even gotten into the... Uh, the policy aspects of this, and, and I will, and I'm, I'm sorry that I've, uh, I've, I've just gotten distracted from thinking about this incident, even as I'm talking to you here on air, and that's just the nature of, of a discussion like this is, and look, I, I'm affected by it too, just like you are. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Should there be any limits at all to the Second Amendment? Well, I mean, I, I think there are some limits already. I think there are, are some they? laws that are... Well, I, I mean, not everybody can get a gun. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is some uh, some uh, some background. Uh, there is not, some cases... No, but that's not consistent where, around the entire where, country. Uh, but I was just hoping uh, to find out whether or not you think there should be any limits. And I presume your answer is no. No, I, I just told you there are some limits under the law right now. That was MSNBC's Katie Turr. Uh, she doesn't know anything about guns. Why is it okay to be on TV and make, it, make a mockery of yourself on this subject? I just, I wonder. 
Yeah. Uh, well, they're not the same in every state. Um, okay, so w- which is it going to be? Are, are we going to have a Second Amendment that is respected in every state or not? Because it's not, it's not clear right now. It's not clear at all. Uh, but there are tons of regulations and laws and federal laws and state and local laws. There are laws everywhere when it comes to guns. Then I could sit here and tell you about, and you're going to say, yeah, Buck, that's New York City. And, and I know, and in a sense, it's my fault for living there, right? But in New York, if one wants to have a handgun for shooting, for target shooting, although there's one place that is open to the public in the five boroughs of New York City, so 8 million people, one place you can go to shoot, and it is uh, not the most wonderful facility ever. Um, but if you wanted to have a gun in New York City, you have to go down to uh, one police plaza, go to the police headquarters. You have to wait in line. You have to be fingerprinted. You have to have a, an extensive uh, form that you fill out. You have to get, I think, letters of reference from two people. They have to be notarized. You, you pay for your fingerprints, and then you also have to go out and go to one of the, I think, the I forget even now the whole process. It's so complicated. And, and, and I do know that it takes about five months and f- about $500. It's a lot of money for a constitutionally protected right. And that's, you don't get a gun for that. You just get the right to be able to go buy a gun without facing prison time. And then if you want to have a, I mean, I know this because I worked at the NYPD and I remember asking, I was like, hey, so I work the NYPD. Is there a, is there like an expedited way? Nope. You go through the same process because I wasn't uh, sworn. Well, I guess I was sworn law enforcement, but I, I wasn't a uh, uniformed officer and you know, I wasn't a, yeah, I mean, I wasn't sworn law enforcement. I was a counterterrorism contractor, basically. Uh, so there, and the answer was no. So I didn't get a gun because there was no expedited process for uh, firearms for people who were in a civilian status. But I found out all about this, and I said, "Wow, it's amazing!" And if you get a handgun, you have to have a trigger lock on the handgun. It has to go in a lockbox. So you got to put a lock on your gun in a lockbox, and you got to keep your ammunition in a separate. Locked box. This is true. Okay, this is the law. And and that's better than, well, it was better than D.C. maybe until recently, although D.C. is still playing all kinds of games with the law. And, and Chicago, I forget what the status is there, but that's been another place that's done everything it can to effectively ban guns. So, and, you know, every year at the, there are, there are one or two parades, which... You know, don't, don't need to specify, but there are one or two parades where my friends, the NYPD, tell me they have to use, they have this equipment that helps them find out where the automatic weapons are coming from. Because people go up on roofs in parts of New York City and fire off automatic weapons. So it's not stopping those guys from getting guns. But nonetheless, they have all these laws in place. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that you had, what was that, Texas Democratic lawmaker, uh, Representative uh, Cuellar, that, that he can't name all the okay let's just i know you're like buck i already know this uh you can't have a gun if you are addicted to or selling a controlled substance you can't have a gun for a misdemeanor uh conviction uh, you are for a misdemeanor conviction of domestic violence you can't own a gun if you're a felon you can't own a gun if i mean you go down this whole you can't own a gun if you've ever been involuntarily committed to a mental institution you can't own you go down this list a lot of reasons federally Federal can't own a gun, any gun whatsoever. Shotgun, twenty-two caliber rifle can't own a gun. So why does the media walk around and say, "Oh, you know, there's no rule. There's tons of rules. There's so many rules that people like me in a place like New York City don't even want to exercise Second Amendment rights because they are designed 
so that you have to be in constant fear and anxiety of accidentally violating them. And then they love to make an example of some Republican in a place like New York City for accidentally transgressing their intentionally Byzantine rules. And for those who are like, well, Buck, you know, you've got to know your gun laws. Really? I can tell you this. They don't even know when you ask them at one police plaza the full extent of some of the gun laws. Meaning you can ask police officers, because I have done this. Hey, so if I have a handgun that's licensed in New York City, am I allowed to take it out of the city? Am I licensed in New York State? Or do I need a, do I need a hunting exception for my handgun? What am I hunting with my knife? You know, I, I don't have one, but I'm saying if, if I had uh, a, a handgun in the city, what would I be hunting with, a, with like a 9mm pistol? And it, It's just, these are all, and you ask the questions, and, and these are, I'm not, by the way, I'm not putting down the police officers that don't have answers, they don't have answers because the legislature doesn't have an answer because they don't know either because all they know is that they want to make it really complicated so you don't get a gun. Meanwhile, there are plenty of guns out on the street illegally. So the only people who definitely get to get guns in New York City are those who already don't mind the prospect of a considerable stay in state prison. They can have guns in New York. And, I, and this is true in other cities and states across the country, you know, depending on and predict, predict uh, Predominantly or predictably, I just com- combined those two words into a new word, uh, kind of. In, in Democrat states, this is what happens. Now, so, I mean, the gun control thing, it's, it, it, where does this, it goes nowhere. For all the reasons I've said, 300 million plus guns in existence, uh, tens of millions of so-called assault rifles that are in civilian hands already. Vast majority of, I mean, not even vast majority, a an exponential majority, I mean, it, you can't even factor it out, of lawful gun owners and, on top of that, those who own assault rifles aren't just not a threat. They're actually making their communities safer, and they are even more law-abiding than the American norm, right? So we keep going through this. We go over it, and, and they get uh, the left gets kind of hissy on this, and they get very nasty and very self-righteous. They'll call for the passage of gun laws that already exist. You've seen a lot of that happening. And uh, I will say there, there are some lawmakers who will push back on this. There are some, I mean, hey, you know, Senator Angus King, for example, play clip four. That church, do you think it's time for those to be banned, Senator? No, I I think we've got to look at that carefully. Here's the problem. I'm from a state where we have one of the highest gun ownership rates in the country, and yet we have one of the lowest rates of gun crime. An assault weapon, (laughs) it's it's called an assault weapon, but it's simply a semi-automatic hunting rifle in costume with a different kind of stock. But the the functionality of the weapon is exactly the same as, as... there are probably, I don't know, thousands of them in Maine and Alaska all over the United States that are used by legitimate hunters. So I, I'm, I have a problem with banning a weapon because of its appearance. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that we had when they did it before was they changed the appearance a little bit and the ban doesn't apply it. I got, you got a senator who I've never been impressed with anything else basically getting it all right there. I mean, he's wrong about the numbers. It's It's millions. It's not... It's not uh, thousands of guns, but, you know, ba- basically figuring it out uh, or getting it right on this. I'm like, oh, OK. So so it is possible for a politician uh, from Maine. He's an independent, right? It's not and it's probably an independent partially because of the gun issue. Uh, it is possible to know what the heck he's talking about because this guy, Angus King, is is more or less getting it right on this as you know, with assault rifles. But then we get into the calls for government to do, government must do something. Government's got to do more. Well, yeah, but 
the failures are not failures of rules or policy. The failures are rules of executing those rules and policies. The implementation of not just the structure of the bureaucratic norms that are put in place, but the actual exercise of. And what I mean by this is this guy, Devin Kelly, uh, broke a baby's skull and said he did it on purpose, pleaded guilty to it, attacked his wife, uh, was uh, committed to a mental institution, escaped from a mental institution, said all kinds of very disturbing, crazy things. Uh, And the Air Force did not pass along to the FBI that he was convicted of a domestic violence charge, which was which was their obligation. Look, it's a failure, right? It's not I don't think anyone intentionally failed on those uh, on, on any of that. But but there was a failure in the system. So we want to talk about system failure. OK, but what do we do about this? Are we going to pass a law that says government has to be efficient? Government can't be inept. Only the smartest people, the most capable, adept people will be allowed to work for government. I mean, even if we did that, do we think that it would eliminate the shortcomings, never mind the fraud, waste, and abuse that is inherent in a government system as well. What do we think would be accomplished by any of this? There's, there is nothing that I can think of that is a law that anyone could write that would change this. I, I do think that cruelty against animals should bar you from, from owning uh, firearms as well. I mean, I think that that's, it, it is a criminal charge. Remember, criminal cruelty against animals, it is a criminal charge that is such an indicator of a person's mindset and things to come. You know, anyone that anyone that would that would abuse a uh, a, a dog or a cat, I mean, a, a household pet, is sending a tremendous signal about their state of mind, very disturbing signal about their state of mind to the rest of society. So, you know, if we're going to talk about laws, that's a law that I that's a law that I'd support. You know. Somebody you know, hits, hits, hits a dog with a bat. I, I don't want them owning a firearm, and I want them watched. I want people to pay attention. That's, that is a, a, an enormous indicator. So anyway, uh, but in terms of notification and uh, the Second Amendment and all this, there is there's nothing that I can see here that would change that would make anything better. And I really do wish, and I know you do too, that there was something that could be done to stop all mass shootings. This is perhaps a a point where it's worth noting that violence in America overall still is on the decline, that violence is going down. Um, And if you take, I think it's Baltimore and Chicago out of the mix, nationally homicides are also going down. Those are two areas that have seen dramatic spikes in violence in recent years, but it has nothing to do with an assault assault rifle or assault rifle ban. So... I, I'm willing to work through this on the policy level and, and take the arguments of the left seriously, but I'm also not going to be bullied into making concessions that should not be made and into conceding on our rights. I mean, this is – I didn't get into Trump's – whether extreme vetting would apply to gunners. First of all, it's a constitutionally protected right. Could you imagine if someone suggested extreme vetting for voting? We're going to make sure that you know, you're really up on civics, that you have an incredibly high level of – uh, awareness of public policy and literacy and, oh, oh, no, that's terrible, right? That would never be okay. But for gun owners, extreme vetting, what does that mean? There's already vetting. There's a national instant background check system. And there are laws in place as I've gone over with you. So what would extreme vetting be? 
And why should you be doing extreme vetting of citizens for a constitutionally protected right would be a completely different circumstance than extreme vetting of foreigners who do not have a right to be here. But the media can't pick that up. They can't figure it out. And they wonder why everyday normal Americans have a tremendous distrust and distaste for them. Um, I want to get into the uh, elections that are going on today. So maybe we'll, we'll get into some of that. Next, and then the DNC's internal warfare, and then Weinstein, and then the 100th anniversary of the Soviet Union's beginnings. we got a big show coming. All right, so there are, uh, today's election day, right? So, so there is that. I think tomorrow, isn't there some sort of event happening where like liberals are all going to I, somebody mentioned this to me today in passing, and I'm on a college campus, so I'm I'm staying very incognito right now. You know, I'm not walking around here. I'm like, these kids are too young. These kids, listen to me, they're like 22. But uh, anyway, these kids are too young to have watched CNN during the Buck era of, of dominance over there. Not not on screen dominance because they only have me on like you know twice a month, but intellectual dominance for sure. Uh, but they're too young to probably have seen much of that. And I know that there are not a lot of, uh, you know, talk radio listeners on the uh, prototypical college campus. Although I've got I've got campus listeners. I've got Team Buck campus in effect. I just don't know how many at Stanford. Stanford's strikes me as not as left wing as some other places. So I don't know. I don't know what the full. I haven't really gotten a sense of it yet. But I walk around here totally like no one has any idea who I am or what I do, which is it's kind of nice actually. You know. Then I like, I like go, I'm like, hey, I'm going to hang out in the student center and get myself some Froyo and sit by the fireplace and read some Proust, you know, stuff like that. Um, anyway, there are, there are uh, somebody mentioned that there was like a scream, that there are, people are screaming tomorrow in commemoration of Trump's victory or something, like screaming out of anguish. I don't know. I've got to look up this story. I don't know much about it right now. Maybe that's, maybe I just got punked. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But there is an elect. There are elections, not an election. There are elections going on today across the country. You have uh, voting on some some pretty big races going going on, and they're going to be ending while I'm on air. Although you know the early exit polling is uh, it's fool's gold, my friends. Can't get too into the early exit polls. The big races are Virginia, the governor's race there, New Jersey, governor's race there, and the New York City mayor. The Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, no, Warren Wilhelm de Blasio, he's going to be the, the mayor for the, continue, for, for the continuing future of New York City. He's like, oh, I don't know anything, and I'm kind of an income poop. But, you know, I'm a Democrat, so it's like no big deal. Um, he's going to win in New York, which is a shame. But you probably don't care that much about the New York City mayor. Is. Let's talk about what does matter to you a little more, maybe. Virginia, you got Northam and Gillespie. Uh, the, the, the thriller in northern, well, I guess it's all Virginia, but these guys I think of as being, you know, I feel like the, the Virginia race is largely determined by those D.C. suburbs. But that's maybe just my D.C.-centric brain thinking about these things. I was trying to think of a way to make it a cool-sounding, and I just, I just belly-flopped into the shallow end of the pool there. So Northam and Gillespie are squaring off, and that's the big one. You've got uh, Terry McAuliffe, who is on the way out. It's amazing that guy's a governor of Virginia. Virginia, you're a great state, and I love a lot of people that live in your state. I had family for most of my life until uh, 
uh, so my grandmother there passed away. I had family in, uh, and I have an uncle. I believe is still in, uh, still in the in Charlottesville area. Um, but I used to go down there and visit uh, grandma. So I've spent a lot of time in in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the surrounding area. Charlottesville and its environs. It sounds like I'm doing a human, you know, terrain assessment or something. Uh, anyway. Virginia, you got Northam and Gillespie. And the most interesting about this race in recent days has been how nasty it was. You had that ad that showed basically racist tea party white male trying to mow down small children in a vehicle, which they then pulled, given what happened in New York City. Uh, But it's just it's gross there. Uh, Oh, yeah. And I'm right, by the way, the Virginia suburbs around Washington are are key to the outcome. So it is a northern Virginia. See, even when I don't know, I kind of know. Uh, in New Jersey, you got Chris Christie tonight. Uh, he's on the way out. His lieutenant governor, uh, Kim Guadagno, I'm hoping I'm getting that right, uh, up against Goldman Sachs exec and U.S. ambassador to Germany, Phil Murphy, who's the Democrat, who spent a ton of money on this race. So we'll see. The uh, Menendez trial for Senator Menendez could play a role in all this because if Christie is still in office uh, when Menendez assuming he's convicted and then ousted from the Senate, which is not a done deal with the Democrats, by the way. They may let a felon hang out with them. Uh, But there is the possibility um, of Christie being able to appoint a Senate replacement for Menendez. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. All right, we, are on we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, Roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. All right, team, I've got some early exit <laughs> I just trashed exit polls before. Now I'm like, I got some exit polls for you. You know, I mean, sometimes it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot of radio. You know, sometimes I'm going to contradict myself. Uh, but, yeah, they just closed the polls in uh, in Virginia. They just closed while we are on air here. So, uh, And this is where they do the exit polling with things like health care. Health care is a priority for Virginia voters, you know. Some of these poll qu- – I'm like, yeah, you know, e- eating is important to me. I'm, I'm, I really care about eating. You know, yeah, of course, health care is important. You know, so are sleep and, you know, food and things like that. But anyway, thanks, exit polling. Well done. Uh, so, where was I? Um, that's what I've got for you. Uh, gun policy follows with 17%. 14% said immigration. 14% said taxes. 9% of Virginia voters said abortion is the issue that mattered most in deciding how they voted. All right, that's some of the exit polling. So, I, I, I told you. I, I wasn't really – I was speaking more about whether you can look at exit polling to determine who won, not so much about the issues people voted on. But nonetheless, here we are. Uh, also, I have a an update for you from before that liberals do plan to, quote, scream helplessly at the sky on election anniversary. Producer Amy passed this on to me. Uh, there are Facebook events around the country inviting people to gather together tomorrow to let out a, quote, primal scream over the current state of our democracy, end quote. So this is like Pajama Boy's rage. Rawr. Pajama Boy, let out your war cry. <laughs> I don't know. It's what's going to happen. So they're going to do that tomorrow. I'm just like so upset about Trump. It's going to be very scary. They're going to probably show up and they're going to be talking about 
issues of the cisgender patriarchy and drinking pumpkin spice lattes. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We'll have to see. Okay, but on to some real, some real business here for a moment. Uh, I, I think I mentioned you last night I was reading. I'm here on campus, and I, I wandered off campus to uh, get uh, a bite to eat. I'm somebody who likes to eat solo, by the way. I don't mind this. I, 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 sometimes I, people say, Do you, you know, don't you feel lonely? No. I sit at a counter or a bar or if need be. I, I prefer not to sit solo at a table because then people do kind of feel bad for you. Uh, but I love to sit at a bar and just eat a meal, and I bring my Kindle with me. Yeah, that's right. I nerd out, and I read, and I eat, and it's great. It's great. You know, get a burger. Okay, so I was there, and I was reading this piece on The New Yorker, and it is pretty incredible. Now, we're going to talk to Emily Campagno here in just a, a few moments about the legal angles of this. But let me just share with you some of it. And it, it is by Ronan Farrow. And I will admit that I was rightfully very critical of Ronan Farrow's uh, ill-timed, ill-fated, and ill-executed TV show on MSNBC. And as somebody who works in this area and knows how hard people work for opportunities, that something was handed to Ronan Farrow on a silver platter that he then so obviously and blatantly uh, botched is... I was, I was well within my right to say, wow, he, he messed that thing up. But his reporting here on the Harvey Weinstein stuff has been uh, pretty impressive. So, you know, I, I give credit where it is due. And here is his piece on, in The New Yorker, Harvey Weinstein's Army of Spies. The film executive hired private investigators, including ex-Mossad agents, to track actresses and journalists. Here's... The opening paragraph. In the fall of 2016, Harvey Weinstein set out to suppress allegations that he had sexually harassed or assaulted numerous women. He began to hire private security agencies to collect information on the women and the journalists trying to expose the allegations. According to dozens of pages of documents and seven people directly involved in the efforts, the firms that Weinstein hired included Kroll, which is one of the world's largest corporate intelligence companies, and Black Cube, an enterprise run largely by former officers of Mossad and other Israeli intelligence agencies. Black Cube, which has branches in Tel Aviv, London, and Paris, offers its clients the skills of operatives highly experienced and trained in Israel's elite military and government intelligence units, according to its own literature. Two private investigators from Black Cube using false identities met with the actress Rose McGowan, who eventually publicly accused Weinstein of rape, to extract information from her. One of the investigators pretended to be a women's rights advocate and secretly recorded at least four meetings with McGowan. This same operative, using a different false identity and implying that she had an allegation against Weinstein, met twice with a journalist to find out which women were talking to the press. In other cases, journalists directed by Weinstein or the private investigators interviewed women and reported back the details, end quote. Weinstein was hiring ex-Mossad guys to run, uh, to, to, to run tradecraft, I mean, to essentially engage in private sector espionage efforts against Weinstein's victims. They're using spy tradecraft against Weinstein's accusers. And doing it at a really sophisticated level. And there are big-time D.C. law firms involved in this, a ton of money. This web of Weinstein's sexual predation and the uh, 
infrastructure around it to keep Weinstein, big Democrat donor, big Democrat fundraiser, friend of Hillary Clinton, friend of Bill Clinton, friend of Barack Obama, friend of Michelle Obama, powerful Democrat. Do not forget it. This web and these connections and this money and this apparatus, they're bringing like world-class tradecraft to bear to silence his sexual assault victims. This is stunning stuff. Highly recommend you read this New Yorker piece. Let's get Emily Campagna on the line here. And on uh, emilycampagno.com for your analysis, right? Absolutely. And on uh, emilycampagno.com. All right, so there's some... All right, so there's some incredible Weinstein revelations to add on top of the already mind-boggling number and and severity of of sexual assault allegations. But this has to do with what is being called Weinstein's Army of Spies. And this comes at a time when there's also reporting that Harvey Weinstein, incredibly powerful Democrat, friend of the Clintons, friend of the Obamas, and one of the most powerful people in Hollywood could, could, based on reporting out today, be arrested for rape as soon as this week. So what is the legal reality of all this? We've got Emily Campagno on the line. She is a legal and sports business analyst and attorney. Emily, great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me here tonight, Buck. All right. First, let's talk about the the allegations that are out there right now that may be acted upon by the district attorney's office in New York, uh, a 2010 sexual assault claim that is now uh, reportedly verified enough that there could be charges. What can you tell us? Right, exactly. And actually, the the charges would be rape. And what's interesting to me is that the DA has come out at this point and said, you know, we can't comment, it's ongoing, but expect grand jury indictments potentially as soon as next week. And also, they touched on cooperation. They touched on evidence. And I think it's important for listeners to note that before a DA proceeds with charges or with turning it over to a grand jury, there has to be enough evidence for them to do so, for it to be worth essentially taxpayers' dollars to spend that time and investment. But I think it's important that here it's in the public's best interest for anyone, no matter what, to at least try And I think what concerned me about the past is the fact that a lot of these DAs threw up their hands and tossed in the towel before that point, before they even tried. To me, it's a matter of public security, and they should have done it sooner. At least, however, here, they're pointing to the victim's memory. They're saying part of what was so helpful in this particular case was her ability to recall moment by moment all of this entire horrible story that happened to her so that we can corroborate it or that at least so that we can provide that level of specificity to turn over to the grand jury. Now, that doesn't bode well for people who, for example, were um, uh, date rape drug victims or intoxicated at the moment, which note this victim was. She talks about the fact that her intoxication affected her ability to consent. So there's a lot of issues at play here. But bottom line, obviously, we would all look forward to finally an indictment. And in terms of of the corroboration and the way that this would play out in the in the criminal justice system, I think that there are 
uh, people out there who have uh, who have their concerns about what would happen going forward if just an accusation is enough to bring formal charges of sexual uh, either sexual assault or in this case rape, uh, and, and that this could be something that becomes very politicized, right? You have some prominent figures in the past, some very prominent cases in the past. For example, the Duke lacrosse case. Uh, there was the gang rape at UVA. That was that was entirely a hoax. There are concerns, I think, uh, I'm hearing concerns from people that it, it, there there has to be more than just the allegation. There has to be some form of corroboration from the prosecutors and, and some evidence that is gathered. What could that be in a case that is seven years old? You're absolutely right. And that's a totally viable point of view. I think in this potential or in this current political climate, a lot of people are hesitant to come out and say that. But you are right that the accused needs to be protected if if and when and even so when they're innocent or even if they're not. I mean, everyone needs to be afforded um, at least that uh you know, assumption. Yeah, they're due process. They're um, rights, of course. Exactly. Exactly. And so the corroboration, you're right, it needs to be an addition. And when in cases such as this, which can be considered historical, so in the past, corroboration can be anything from the victim reporting to another person. So we have a hearsay, another witness to it. Look, she came to me that night sobbing. Um, here's the security footage of my apartment building that showed her you know, coming to my to my apartment building distraught. Here are the emails between the two of us discussing it. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a report to an authority figure at that moment for everything to count. But that's when it's circumstantial evidence. So short of actual physical evidence or actual evidence, you know, stemming from that night in question, then it becomes circumstantial. And that's why it's so important for these victims to tell anyone that they feel safe telling immediately, because at least there's some corroboration in that moment. But plenty of cases have been, A, prosecuted, and B, led to convictions on circumstance alone. We're speaking to Emily Campagno, uh, who is a legal analyst and attorney. Um, Emily, d- did you get a chance to see this piece in, uh, I think it was it was in The New Yorker, about the the people that are hired and also the, the way that law firms act as middlemen between what are essentially fixers, uh, private spies for hire, and and kind of, you know, black bag job guys and law firms. I mean, I think for a lot of people, this is uh, a revelation that, that there would be this Michael Clayton-style behavior that's very real out there. You're so right. Frankly, and yes, I am familiar with these explosive allegations and everything that was revealed in uh, by Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker. Um, And you're right. It totally reveals all of the tactics and all of the tools that basically powerful people or wealthy people can use to suppress, in this case, simply negative stories that, in the court of public opinion at least, are true and in the minds of 80-plus women who have alleged rape and sexual assault in Weinstein's behalf, Um, and in some cases also dealing with criminal investigations. So you're right that I think it's, it's totally illustrative of a dark underbelly that law firms employ, that private investigators focus on in terms of investigating um, allegations and investigating people behind those allegations. And the interesting thing is, first of all, on its face in terms of, oh, can someone be paid to investigate someone else? Is that legal? Yes, it's legal. But there's a lot of questionable practices that Weinstein's um, contracted army employed, right? I mean, they, they two, 
two, last year, two of the investigators from one of the companies were arrested on hacking charges. And there was a lot of front companies, the true front companies that were set up. So that's fraud. There was intimidation. There was threats. The, the bifold purpose for Weinstein's army, as it were, was to quash publication of these negative quote-unquote stories and also to take Rose McGowan's manuscript, to get that manuscript prior to publication. And he enlisted through a law firm by David Boyes, three different firms to do so, three different um, former secret office firms, basically private investigation firms. And the contract, which I tweeted out earlier, one of those contracts, that was a $200,000 contract with a success fee added on of $300,000. And what was... Yeah, this is real money. I mean, there's real money getting thrown at this, everybody. There's like a bounty of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on getting this information through whatever means they can. Totally. And in that contract, what struck me, there are many things that struck me, but one of the one of the one of the statements was due to urgency, we are utilizing our blitz methodology. Now, this was Black Cube. This is the Israeli former ex-Mossad agents who are employed at Weinstein's behest saying we are using blitz methodology. And you know what blitz is? What, what we've come to find out is pure intimidation and it's threats and it's sidling to Rose McGowan under guise of being a feminist pro-women's you know, domestic violence uh, group and paying her speaking fees, investing in her production company. And the level of deceit with ironic purposes to me, um, I think that's what shocks the public conscience. And, you know, the other side to it, like, like I said, any criminal defense attorney would say, of course, we investigate unproven allegations. Of course, we investigate other side, other uh, the other side. Um, but it's so negative. It's so invasive. These tactics are clearly questionable. And then again, under the entire rubric of, well, we know this guy's a bad guy. So this isn't something where what you mentioned before, you know what, I've been falsely accused. Please help me prove my innocence. This is so not that case. And I think that's what bodes so terribly with the public is it's an extremely wealthy, powerful villain who is paying upwards of a million dollars to attack his his rape victim and to go after our media which we trust with seeking out and securing the truth that's i just want to say that you know there's there's this actor right now um and and i was trying to remember his name this is what i was one of the things i was thinking of as i was talking to you at the start of the segment uh emily and that and that is this actor who uh, ed westwick who's best known for being a star of the show gossip girl he has been publicly accused of rape. This has just happened the last day or so. And he claims to not know this woman or have ever had any contact with her whatsoever. Uh, I do not know this woman. I have never forced myself on in any manner on any woman. I certainly have never committed any rape. I do not know this woman is a very provable or disprovable thing. So here you have a celebrity, a prominent person, uh, who is saying... That this is not a this is not a close call. This is 100 percent a false allegation along the lines of the Duke Lacrosse case or some of these other things. Now, whether that's true or not, I think the authorities will be able to figure out pretty quickly. But I think we're going to see more of these too, unfortunately, because the environment right now is g- getting so hot and so tense and so uh, full of politicization that there will be. I think there will be more of this. I think that there will be people who take this uh, in directions that, or, or take the moment, rather, to try and exploit this for whatever reason. I, I, don't, I can't imagine why anybody would ever level a false allegation, 
but given how many real allegations there have been, it's very hard right now to be the person, in this case, almost always going to be the guy who says, oh, but I'm actually the innocent one. And that's a scary place. I agree with you on all of those levels. And of course, even one proven false allegation totally destroys the authenticity and credibility of the million other accurate, authentic allegations. So that's the largest problem in my mind, in addition to being, yes, in, in, in his eyes or in a truly innocent person's eyes, look, this is a witch hunt. I had nothing to do with this. You're right that it is totally provable for him to have not known someone, which is why it's so difficult for someone who does, which is why it really is a gray area for someone who has been accused that says, you know what, you're, you're, you are going to find a ton of photographs with me and this person, or I really did believe it was consensual. And I, I mean, that, that's a whole other topic, but there's, the point is, is that there's a very big spectrum potentially in people's minds um, where they might have honestly thought they were doing something consented to or not illegal and in a climate of sensitivity and empowerment for women and men to come forward, for victims to come forward, then perhaps that line is blurred. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We've got Selena Zito with us now, everybody. She is a syndicated columnist and co-author of the upcoming new book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Selena, great to have you back. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you. So b- before we get into your book, if, if you don't mind, I just wanted to ask for uh, some of your insight in, into the current situation of the Democrat Party as you see it. Uh, we have some people who are saying that we shouldn't even pay any attention to these Donna Brazil re- revelations, including Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, who has the following to say. Play clip eight. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Let's, let's, 13, listen, to, let's listen to Donna Brazil. One, one, one more time. Nobody cares. Uh, on this week. Nobody on. cares listen. about what uh, Donna Governor, Brazil Governor, has Governor, said in a book. Governor. I don't know if that's true, Selena. What do you think? <laughs> that's so not true. Yeah, uh, the other night I had some beers with a bunch of Democratic strategists that work in and around Pennsylvania and Ohio. And, you know, these are the the men and women that sort of make all these local races work, um, not only in uh, in general elections, but also primaries. So so, um, a part of the problem is, is it gets at the fracture within the party uh, between, you know, the the Donna Brazils and the Clintons and the Sanders um, of this world. This this disruption that you saw happen with uh, with Brazil and with Sanders and with the Clinton people is very um, sort of a microscope or, or 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 a peek into the fractures you see at the most local level uh, between Democrats and and it, it was interesting to me and and I don't think anybody's really noted this it's not just a top down problem it's a bottom up problem. And, and, and that rarely happens, right? But it's coming from both ends and, and the party is really, really struggling because of these kinds of problems. It, it, it that, that is why you don't see them have a message. And, you know, part of the big problem for the Democrats is that they have spent much of this past year since Trump won, um, either disbelieving or or dismissing his win 
uh, or or telling people that you were stupid for voting for him. And so they they have not been able to sort of craft a tangible benefit for you to come over to their side. Before so, we move on, and that, that's words, a perfect transition. A I'm sorry, Selena, I didn't mean to talk over you. I uh, just want to say no, before no, no. we transition into your book, uh, because I think that's a, a good place to do it, which is how, this whole Trump thing, how it happened and what it means now. Uh, just it, it, do you think that it is are, are we in the last gasps of the Democrat bar, uh, Democrat Party being the party of, of the Clinton dynasty or uh, are we actually seeing the reassertion of and when I mean the Clintons, I don't just mean Hillary and Bill. I mean all of their apparatus. Right. I mean, is that are, are they losing their power or are they actually just now reasserting Donna Brazil doesn't get to call the shots here? We still do. Well, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Donna Brazil, they were all of that second generation of New Deal Democrats. And and I think what we, if you look at it at a more larger point, this is the, the 2016. What led up to 2016 was the death of the New Deal Democrats. And, and, and these are the New Deal Democrats. What I mean by that, these are the, the children and the grandchildren of the, of, of the working class, um, a voter who supported FDR in, in some of the most trying economic, uh, times in our country. And, and they, these are people, especially in places like where, you know, where I live in Western Pennsylvania, right? You're born, you know, a relig- you're born Catholic or Protestant and, and a Democrat. I mean, it's just sort of part of your life. And, and that tradition has broken with, with Hillary Clinton's election. It was leading up to that. The Democratic Party has been pushing these voters out, and the Republican Party has been absorbing them, uh, and it's been, um, you know, it's caused growing pains within the party. And, and both parties are changing, and there's new coalitions within both parties, and that's part of what the new revolt looks at. But, I mean, is, is the Elizabeth Warren-Bernie Sanders wing truly ascendant, or will they be co-opted by the forces of, I don't know what to call it other than just, you know, the big bad DNC? No, I, I think they are the ascendant wing of this party. And, and that is a problem for the Democrats, because uh, uh, most of America, whether you're Democrat, Republican, or independent, tend to be center-right. Not on every issue, but if you look at the whole person, you know, with a buffet of issues, they're more central right than they are progressive. All right. We're speaking to Selena Zito, and now we can get into her upcoming book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Uh, what should what should people know? I mean, you wrote this book. I know you uh, and look, Selena, you did great work, and I remember being over at CNN when you were at CNN, and you were doing great work on the election by actually covering the election instead of deciding that this was just going to be a- an opportunity to grandstand for one side or the other. So, congrats on journalism. <laughs> that was oh, that was you. fun to see. Uh, and and on top of that, I just want to know, you know, what are you telling people in this book that uh, affects the way that we should be perceiving our politics today? So the book. I, I, what I did was I went out to all the counties that went for Obama twice and then for uh, Trump in in the Great Lakes uh, Rust Belt area. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Iowa. And 
I took a look at the voters in those counties. There's a lot of data diving that went into this. Um, and I, I took a look at the voters uh, at these districts in, in these counties because these are the purest flips. I even eliminated counties that went Republican for Senate candidates in 2014. And, you know, there's, there's sort of seven different archetypes of voters that I broke down that people uh, didn't see as being a Trump supporter, but are now becoming part of this new coalition and that, that gave rise under Trump. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Trump is where they stop. This is the new formation of the Republican Party. And I'll, I'll, I'll identify one of the groups for you, um, and that would be the um, women with guns. Uh, women went for, in the majority of women, went for Trump under the support of the Second Amendment, and that they believed as modern feminists the most powerful, empowering thing that they could do was own a gun and be able to protect themselves. And these vo- these women voters were mostly middle to upper middle class white females. Wow! So that's part of Trump's new coalition, uh, such yeah. as it, as such as it were. Are you sensing? I mean, this is tying in what we're talking about right now to to the beginning of our conversation here for a moment, Selena. But based on the research you did going out to all these towns, uh, are are the Democrats, have they realized, have they come to the realization that they have to restore their outreach and their, well, just their connectivity to people who are in these parts of the country that went for Trump that had in the last election cycle gone for Democrats? I mean, have they diagnosed their own problem properly or are they still deluded with the russia collusion uh narrative yeah they're they're still they still have not sort of accepted this election and this change a lot of democratic experts or 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 democratic voters uh, the most passionate ones still think of this as a one-off and that this was something that happened either because of russians or uh, because people were stupid and 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 or racist. And so they have stuck with that sort of that three pronged idea that this is why Trump won. And they have not focused on offering these voters um, a, a, a reason to go to their side. And then until they they come to those terms, they're still going to struggle in in elections. Now, I know we're, you know, we don't know the results yet in Virginia, but there were the Democrats that I sat down with the other night said, you know, it might help our party a little bit if we lost Virginia, because then they won't think this is a one-off. Right, that would be the way, that would be a wake-up call that even Democrats couldn't ignore. Right, because, you know, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, Virginia is a blue state. It is a blue state. It's about 6%. It's more Democrat than Republican, and Republicans win their will win their once in a while statewide, 
but for the most part, it is a blue state. And that has a lot, a lot to do with the changing demographics in northern um, Virginia and the higher concentration of, of population. Right. It, in it's that really area. D.C. It's D.C. spillover that's created Virginia or that's made Virginia a blue state. I mean, I used to live there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, I spent a few days in Virginia um, um, writing a story about this race. And, you know, it was interesting to me that a lot of, you know, Virginia Democrats were incredibly uninterested in this race. Now, that may have changed in the last two days. I don't know what the impact of the um, of that Latino voter, um, the Latina, I forget the name of that, Latina Victory ad has on this race. And that's the one where you saw the white guy in the pickup truck and he's running down, you know, um, a minority children. You know, that was pretty awful. Yeah, they pulled it after the terrorist attack in New York, right? Uh, so, I mean, that, that could have helped Northam. That could have hurt him. The one thing I do know is that if Gillespie loses tonight, the Republicans will be fine because there really wasn't any expectation he was going to win. But if Northam loses, I think that the Democrats will be inconsolable. Uh, but it also might be the best gift they ever get in terms of, coming to terms with what they need to change about their message and their approach to voters. One more for you, Selena, before we let you go. The heart of Trumpism is cultural or economic? Uh, it's both. You it's go, really so it's, it's, it's really equal. I mean, I know it is both at some level, but you'd say it's, it's, you can make an argument that it's equal parts cultural and economic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, here's the thing about culture, right? 20, 30 years ago, we all watched the same thing on television, right? We had these cultural touchstones that were, that bonded us together, whether we lived in Washington, D.C. or East Liverpool, Ohio. You know, we don't have those anymore. And, and so we, we feel uh, people that live outside of Washington and New York feel really, um, uh, out of touch and out of sync with the values of New York and Washington. And, and so you have that factor, but you also have the economic factor, right? I mean, during this great technological industrial revolution that we're experiencing right now, automation and technology is taking away, I forget how many jobs, it's in the thousands, jobs a day. And they're not replacing them with well-paying jobs, uh, you know, for the same people in that same community. There may be more jobs, but they're not going to be located, again, in East Liverpool, Ohio. And, and so there, there is the have and the have-nots. And that also creates an economic and cultural division. Selena Zito is the author of the upcoming The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. She's also a syndicated columnist, writes great stuff. Uh, check out all of her latest. And uh, Selena, always great uh, to have you on. Thanks for making the time and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. We're going to talk about the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik victory, the seizure of St. Petersburg, and what that meant for humanity, for the world, for 100 years. So I had a feeling that Trump might surprise his critics, upend his detractors, flip the script, and go to the DMZ between North and South 
Korea during his trip to uh, the Far East. And sure enough, he was going to. I know it's easy to say now. Now that he's not going, but people have said that he was going to go, it's easy to say, well, I, 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 thought, I thought he was going to go. I mean, yeah, I thought he was going to go. But he's not going uh, because his surprise visit to the DMZ uh, was foiled by bad weather, they say. So um, they had to call off Marine One, and uh, Trump had to return to Seoul. It's a 30-mile flight north from Seoul, the capital of South Korea. So Trump is not going to the DMC. I mean, you know, it's a look, let's, let's all be quite clear on this. It's a photo op, right? Yeah, there's symbolism, but it's mostly a photo op. I mean, it doesn't change North Korea policy or anything else going on. Uh, so with all of that, also uh, another thing that I wanted to just toss into the mix here I haven't served, and I should not say this out loud because this is, I am jinxing myself here. I know this. But I haven't served on a jury in a while. Or, or I should, I've actually never served on a jury. I've never been, gosh, I don't know. I shouldn't say this out loud. I haven't been called to jury duty in a while. I'm not saying so long that, like, they clearly are going to have to find me soon. But I'm just saying it's been a little while. It's been, you know, it's been more than a year. Let's just put it that way. I'll just say that. More than a year. How many years? Who knows? More than a year. Uh, but I remember being excused very quickly each time they called out prospective jurors. My politics are, well, certainly, I guess, pretty out there now. Whether they're well-known or not, that all depends on who the person is. But uh, I'm certainly on the record on a whole bunch of things. And as somebody who also has uh, law enforcement in his family and is very outspoken, I tended to be the person that was very quickly excused from each jury selection process. Uh, and and I will say though that at least now if you go for jury duty you have you can bring in a smartphone right I mean you can bring stuff with you that connects you to the outside world I, I may or may not recall that in, in my day jury duty uh, you you could bring a book but there was let's just say there weren't even really a lot of cell phones around it's been a little while uh, anyway that wasn't the only time or was it I don't know can neither confirm nor deny but the point here is that I saw this. And this is not an important story, but I just sometimes you got to. Uh, and the Senator Menendez, which is a very important story and is being very much covered in the most nominal fashion by the mainstream media, right? They're, they're, covered, they're given the bare minimum coverage, right? <laughs> this is like if this were a health insurance plan, this is catastrophic coverage only. I mean, they're just the bare, the bare bones plan here. And today it was reported by Bloomberg that a juror asked the trial judge, what is a senator? Now, maybe there's some context. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. But for an adult American citizen to have to ask or to decide to ask a judge in a trial of this magnitude about a senator, mind you, who is on trial for corruption and bribery, what is a senator? There's a part of me that at first read this story and thought, well, this clearly can't be true. I mean, this is, must, be you know, must be misreported or whatever. And then I thought about it, and I let it kind of marinate you know, upstairs a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I actually could see this happening. I could see somebody saying, yeah, I don't know what a senator is. What's a senator? But the person on the trial, you would think, should know. All right, Russian Revolution, Centennial, what does communism, what has it meant for the last hundred years? 
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 100 years ago today, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin seized power in a coup in what is today St. Petersburg at the time, Petrograd, and set in motion events and emplaced in power a political ideology that would claim the lives of directly and indirectly over 100 million people. A hundred years ago today, an idea took root in the corridors of power in Russia that would almost destroy the world, that would bring us to the brink of nuclear war and would condemn hundreds of millions and multiple generations to slavery, genocide, torture, uh, the policing of thoughts the dismemberment of family relations, the usage of familiar relations by intelligence services for the purposes of repression, mass starvation, the creation and implementation of a vast series of prison camps, the gulag, intended to both terrify the population and subjugate, destroy, and murder millions of people. That is the true legacy of communism a hundred years later. And yet when we look back on the history of the communist regime and what it did and the basis of its ideology, why was it so wrong? What was, what was it that led communism Or why was communism such a tool, an instrument of mass murder and genocide and global industrial terror? It is the elevation of the collective over the individual and the elimination of God and its replacement with atheism. That's it. It's a tremendously complicated topic with Uh, endless histories and debates and discussion that could be had about many aspects of it. We're talking about a hundred years of history that affected a large portion of the globe. Well, it affected the entire globe, but that determined the political systems for, over the course of time, a few billion people. Uh, It is astonishing in retrospect that the American media and intelligentsia, intellectuals in this country, went through a series of, at first, favorable treatment of communism, fellow travelers, many ideological sympathizers in this country. The American Communist Party was a real thing. There were infiltrations of our government, despite, to this day, the claims to the contrary from assorted media figures, historians, the Democrat Party, Uh, Because leftists, Democrats, socialists, communists, they all share many of the same root fallacies. Not saying they are the same, but there are root fallacies that are similar in those ideologies. Progressive Democrats share beliefs with socialists who share beliefs with communists. And the history of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union 
is one that is soaked in blood, uh, but also allows the whole world to see the dangers of a collective ideology, a collectivist ideology, the dangers of full-scale authoritarianism, totalitarianism, and what that means. There is not nearly enough time in our education system spent on this topic. Uh, the public is still, and, and you just know this from the way that it is depicted in pop culture. I mean, if you see, or, or in, our, in our media, there are still those who will say that, you know, so, sure, Stalin had his excesses, but the Soviet system was based on good intentions. No person who wanted to be taken seriously and respected in public would ever utter such words about Hitler's National Socialism. But yet with Stalin, there is, a, there, there is still an effort with the Soviet Union not to justify all of it because it's too horrific for, for anyone with, with even a shred of dignity and intellectual honesty uh, and morality to try and justify Stalin was responsible for at least 20 million deaths within his own country. We don't even really know the full scale of the numbers. We have a sense of the scope, millions, tens of millions, murdered, starved, tortured, beaten to death, committed to psychiatric institutions for the crime of thinking the wrong thing. That was a common tactic of the KGB and the Soviet Union the official erasing of people from public records so that the Soviet Union would not, as the Nazis did, keep very detailed to the person records of their purges and their executions and their mutilations. But understanding the ideology and understanding the history and the origins of communism is necessary for understanding how it all went so wrong, but also why to this day we have to maintain a certain vigilance against the same fallacies. A vigilance against state-based atheism and a vigilance against collectivism. Elevation of the group over the individual, the elevation of identity politics over the rights, this uh, sanctity and dignity of each and every human being. There are echoes of what went so wrong in the Soviet Union in our own society today. And I'll try to get into some of them, although I don't have all that much time for such a, a weighty topic. Uh, from the very beginning, and, and uh, the, one of my great frustrations, and those who want to read more, especially on the debate about how evil the Soviet Union really was and how Western intellectuals, a lot of Americans, a lot of Europeans, Western Europeans, uh, were defending the Soviet Union or soft-peddling their crimes or pretending that it wasn't quite as bad as it was, covering up for their, uh, their failures. And there were active debates for decades after Stalin's purges about whether there really were purges or not. How bad were the purges? Robert Conquest, an uh, Anglo-American author, wrote The Great Terror. And I would highly recommend it to all of you. Uh, he sets the record quite straight. And once you read that book, you get an understanding of just how root and branch rotten the communist system was. Everything about it. Top to bottom. A machine of ideological slaughter. Crushing people's lives with the only rationale given that 
whatever supports the party is good. Anything that opposes the party is bad. You are either helping the revolution or you are a counter-revolutionary. And if you are a counter-revolutionary, you must be eliminated. And this did not just extend to individual acts. In fact, one of the great evils of the totalitarian system of the communists was if you were part of the wrong class, the wrong ethnic group, if you fell into the wrong identity politics segment, you were to be eliminated. It did not matter how much you supported the revolution. You could have had pictures of Lenin all over your home. But if you were a kulak, if you were part of the uh, small individual farming class that was liquidated by Stalin through dekulakization, they found them to be uh, undesirables. They had this radical economic plan. They wanted to industrialize. They wanted people to move to the cities, and they wanted collective farms. No individual ownership, no individual farms. So the kulaks had to go. It didn't matter what their politics, ideology was, or anything else. Whole classes of people to be eliminated because they're counter-revolutionaries. Because it no longer mattered what an individual said, thought, or did. It was, is this individual useful for the purposes of the party or not? And that kind of instrument, uh, instrumentalization of humanity, of human beings, extended all the way to the top of the Communist Party itself. Those who would, at one point, be heralded as necessary for the success of the revolution, later on were lined up against a wall in some dark cell somewhere and unceremoniously shot because Stalin thought they should be, because he didn't like them or because they were a threat to his power, or maybe he just thought that it was time for them to go. didn't matter. No justification needed. It was all for the party. It was all for the power of the system. And the system was going to bring about paradise. The system was going to make a socialist heaven on earth. You know about the promises. The promises never came to fruition, but those promises were used as a kind of collateral against an enormous debt that the Soviet Union ran up against humanity, a debt of lives stolen, crushed, destroyed, murdered, mutilated by the millions, millions upon millions. And that evil of communist ideology, as you all well know, extended well beyond the boundaries and the borders of the Soviet Union, not just even in the area of the Iron Curtain that fell down after the Second World War. But it now is a problem that plagues us to this day. What would the world be like if China was not still grappling with its communist, not just roots, but communist party apparatus still in power? I know it's different from the Soviet regime, but because of its inherently statist nature, you could have inhumane policies like the one-child policy, for example. You would not in a, a liberal democracy of citizens who respect life and individual rights ever have such a thing, but in communist China, yes, you can have it. We should all also understand that some of the most horrifying components of North Korean society today, the fact that the regime believes in punishment by family or for entire families based on the acts of a single individual, That's not new. North Koreans didn't invent that. In fact, the founder of the North Korean dynasty 
spent time in the Soviet Union. The founder of the North Korean dynasty uh, was somebody who was tied in with the Chinese and the Soviets and borrowed from their totalitarian playbook extensively, as well as in the creation of the cult of personality around the Kim dynasty. So the horrors of communism continue to this day. They're just in different places and on a different scale. It's almost impossible for me to sit here and quantify all of the terrors that should be and must be attributed to bad ideas. Ideas really do matter. I have to remind myself of that sometimes these days in political discourse in this country, but it's one of the reasons why, no matter how tired I am, how frustrated I am, I show up and I try to do the best I can to share good ideas with you and the truth. Because if you listen to the show, you already know bad ideas ruin lives, ruin countries, could even ruin the world. And we came close to that because of communism. So the fact that a coup in 1917, 100 years ago today, then set in motion the most awful totalitarian regime in terms of human toll in all of history is not something that any of us should forget. It's not talked about in school nearly enough. And an understanding of why the ideology was so corrosive and destructive needs to accompany any study of the subject matter. Our kids, forget just our kids, our adults, the American people need to understand why did communism turn out the way that it did? What was it about it that was so wrong? I wonder how many, if I were to walk around the street, even here in California, and ask the question, how many would give me a real answer? I wonder how many would, if I asked, do you think that communism is a good idea, it's just tough to implement, would say, yeah, that sounds about right. And I wonder how many would, when asked who the greatest monsters of history are, would understand that any, certainly in in the modern context, any answer would be, with the exception of Hitler, who would probably be top of the list, but all the other answers would be communists. Mao, Stalin, Pol Pot, you go down the list. The worst of the worst, communists. And how many could even separate out what's the difference between a socialist and a communist? Well, the communists were Bolsheviks before they changed their name, and the Bolsheviks were part of a broader coalition of socialists, including Mensheviks, who were trying to fight against the Bolsheviks, and initially were going to have a more representative assembly, but then force, brute force, violence became the order of the day. Lenin said, you know what, it's going to be our way, and we're going to kill anyone who stands in the way. That was the seed, that was the basis, the beginning of the uh, the Soviet totalitarianism. That it's not about discourse, it's not about right and wrong, it's just about power and how do you achieve it. And anything that can achieve power for a regime that will elevate the state into the position of God is therefore justified. No action can be considered immoral. No right is sacrosanct. The only thing that mattered was the revolution. How many could make that case? How many of our fellow Americans even know this history, know this ideological battle that's been playing out for so many decades? Ideas really do matter, and dangerous and destructive ones have resulted in unimaginable and untold suffering for generations, and 
we should commemorate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet totalitarianism by a bloodthirsty Lenin and the individuals around him that were part of this coup, we should also remember that it has been a hundred years. Communism has been a hundred years of the worst oppression, mass murder, and destruction that humanity has ever known. I've got breaking news for all of you listening. Uh, <laughs> not, not a good night for the GOP, I'm sorry to say. Not a good night for the GOP. You have a Democrat victory in the governor's race in New Jersey. And you have a Democrat victory in the governor's race in Virginia. New York, de Blasio was going to win. We all know. Who cares? I mean, you could run. You could literally run a, a, a sack of potatoes with a sign on it that says Democrat candidate in New York City, and it would win, right? It doesn't matter. So, Yeah. But the, the governor's race is, well, look, New Jersey was expected to go to the Democrat, fine. But now you're going to have, a ooh, scorching hot takes. A lot of hot takes coming your way on why Ralph Northam was able to beat Gillespie. And I think it's going to be interesting to see people try and come up with a way to say that uh, northern Virginia suburbs voting for the Democrat instead of uh, for the Republican here is a reflection of Trump's failures. or You know, everyone tries to take a lot of, well, to come up with a lot of takeaways from these state elections for the national political conversation. And sometimes they're compelling. I don't know. I don't really see one here with with what happened in Virginia just yet. Although keep in mind, I'm I'm just looking at the results now and I'm just reading now what the what the tallies were and everything. I just bringing you the breaking news here. That's how I roll, bringing you the breaking news. But I do not see a, uh, a, a reason for this to be, and maybe, maybe I'll see it and I'll tell you about it tomorrow. I don't know. But I, I don't see how this is a reflection necessarily on uh, the administration. Although people will say it's that, but I'm just trying to be honest. How is this a reflection of the administration? Um, the Democrat wins in Virginia, which was expected to happen, I guess. 65% of the vote in Northam had 51% and Gillespie trailed with 48%. So look, I mean, you know, Virginia's a, a close a close state, Democrat and Republican. So, okay. All right, Democrats. You pulled off a victory this time, but uh, just wait till those midterms come up, my friends. It's going to be a very different story for all the Democrats out there. We've got Victor Davis Hanson joining us here in a few moments to talk about who should get nukes as well as his book that's out on the Second World Wars. So VDH of the Hoover Institute's a great, great scholar, great analyst uh, and historian. So we're excited to chat with him. And then I'll get some Team Buck Speaks so we can hear from all of you. All right, everybody, we talk about politics a lot on this show. We talk about history on this show. We have somebody who can give uh, unique and erudite insights into both. Victor Davis Hansen is with us now. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, an American military historian, columnist at National Review, and his latest is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, which I have now in my hand. Victor, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, first, let's, let's talk about your piece on uh, crossing the Trump Rubicon and, and the competing visions right now in American politics as you see it. Well, the Democratic Party, as we used to know it, me meaning somebody 64 years old, of Hubert Humphrey or JFK and the latest incarnation in the 90s by Bill Clinton no longer exists. So the progressive project has superseded the Democratic Party. And my point in that article was I don't see a concerted resistance against that, whether it's culturally exemplified by the NFL protest or the statuary removals by night or the Antifa protest or pretty much the agenda of Bernie Sanders, except for Trump, whether we like it or not. I mean, we're not getting a lot of influential pushback by the Weekly Standard or the Republican establishment in the Senate. So whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, and there's legitimate views either way that whether you like it or not, he's crossed the river and you're either with him or against him now because there's no other viable alternative, at least in the next few months or years. I've been speaking to people about this in, in re, well, in recent months, in recent weeks, and as recently as today. And it seems to me, Victor, that there needs to be an acceptance from within the, let's call it the intellectual wing of, of the conservative movement or the intellectuals wing of the conservative movement, that uh, Trumpism is now the GOP. And that's not going to change anytime soon. So working within that framework seems to me to be much more helpful if, in fact, being helpful is the goal instead of standing outside of it and and passing judgment on its imperfections. Yeah, I think there's two points there. One, it's hard to know what they don't like about the agenda. It's the most conservative since Reagan. If you look at national security policy, the restoration of deterrence, closing the border, uh, deregulation, energy promotion. I know there's some problems with trade, but Trump has not had tariffs quite like uh, George W. Bush yet. And then, so I think it's hard if you are never Trumper to tell us exactly what Trump is doing message-wise or agenda-wise that you don't like. And then the alternative is that the Republican Party would not have won those nine swing states with Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. I like both of them, but they weren't going to win. And whether we like it or not, they've lost four out of the five popular votes in the last elections. We're speaking to uh, Victor Davis Hansen, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Victor, you have a piece up on National Review. Who gets to have nuclear weapons and why? I I think this is uh, particularly uh, important to speak about right now, considering that the Trump administration or President Trump himself is is over in uh, East Asia and trying to bring together a coalition to deal with the problems of North Korea. And uh, that discussion seems to be a constant repetition of the the same ideas and policies that have not uh, borne fruit in the past. And I just wonder at what point we understand that North Korea is going to push other states in the region to go nuclear. Yeah, I think the good point there, and he has a lot of leverage if he use it, is that in the last 30 years, we were always told that nonproliferation was important for the world, but that the people who broke it, whether it was China or Pakistan or in the case of the attempts by Syria and Iraq, were our enemies. But we should tell the Chinese and the Russians, too, that the next round of nonproliferation efforts, if it fails, it's going to lead to a nuclear Japan, a nuclear South Korea, maybe a nuclear Taiwan in reaction to North Korea. And in the Middle East, if Iran gets the bomb and they think that's cute, they being its patrons like Uh, Russia or China, then they better be careful because Egypt and Saudi Arabia will probably get the bomb along with Israel, and the world will be not nine nuclear players, but 16 or 17, and 
the last six or seven are going to be pro-American. So it's not going to be good if you're China and you look at your border and all of a sudden you wake up and there's China, there's a Taiwan, um, Japan, South Korea, Russia, Pakistan, India, American bases, Iran, all around your border. I, I, I start to wonder, are, are fears of a proliferation a little overblown, especially with respect to the downside of a nuclear-armed South Korea, the downside yeah. of a nuclear-armed Japan. These are close U.S. allies. They're responsible yeah. nation states. And I don't know many um, Americans who pay attention to the issue, which is a whole subset, right? I mean, who, who really thinks about Pakistan all that much these days? But people aren't losing sleep over Pakistan having nukes right now, and they shouldn't, realistically. I mean, anything could go wrong, but nothing has yet. Well, I think the, the general rule is if you're and, a Demo- and, 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 and India's role in all yes. this is essential, too. That's why we don't lose sleep. Yeah. I think there's two, two things that make us not lose sleep. Either they're democratic, like France, Britain, the United States, and Israel, or they're deterred by a neighbor, like India does to Pakistan. But in the case of North Korea, we don't have a deterrent. Maybe Iran, Israel, maybe not. So, And we've always said it's bad to proliferate, and it is. The more nuclear powers, the more chances in theory. But we've always said that because we thought they were going to be anti-American. The next round may not be anti-American. And the onus is on our rivals and belligerents, not us, it seems to me, to make a world more conducive uh, to peace. Because I would not want to be facing a nuclear Japan. They will make nukes like Toyota's, not like North Korea does. We've got Victor Davis Hansen here, who is a fellow, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, also author of the new book, The Second World Wars. Uh, tell me about what you address in here, Victor. What, what, what are some of the important areas and, and points you make in the Second World Wars? One of them is deterrence. is not just defined by your material wherewithal, but the appearance or the likelihood that you're unpredictable or you have the will to use it so... In the case of 1939, Germany, by any material standard, was weaker than France and Britain combined. But they were not, France and Britain did not give the appearance to the Germans they would do anything with their wonderful shard tanks or their submarine Spitfires. And especially in 41, when Japan and Germany did the unthinkable in attacking uh, two countries whose population was almost was well over 350 million people. And why did they do that? Because of American prior isolationism, Russian collusion, and when coupled with British appeasement, Hitler and Tojo made a fundamental error that uh, these countries either wouldn't react in a global existential fashion in which they did, or if they did, they wouldn't fight wholeheartedly. And of course, once he and Russia was invaded by the Third Reich, and once America was attacked at Pearl Harbor, and once Italy and Germany declared war, on December 11th, and it was just a matter of time and to what degree the Allies wanted to have a unconditional surrender rather than a World War One-like armistice. So when you, when you declare a war in a global sense to the end, as Hitler and Tojo, you better have an ability to hit the enemy's homeland. Neither country had a four-engine bomber. Germany had no aircraft carrier. So they did not have ability to hurt the homelands of the countries they surprise attacked and the countries that were surprise attacked had a very good ability to hit their homeland. Do you think it's fair to say that uh, in the, at least in, in a superficial review of, of the histories that have been written or the way that, the way that people think of it, mm-hmm. the First World War is always synonymous with miscalculation, mm-hmm. right? Everyone, everyone knows, and this is how we got into trench warfare. But from what you're telling me, there were equally enormous and catastrophic miscalculations about what the reaction to certain 
moves were by the belligerents in the Second World War. Yeah, I think they're both the same. I think the First World War was just a loss of deterrence on the side of the German, uh, the British and the French that were not able to tell Germany that it's not going to be 1870 and 71 again. And the same came in World War II. It was a miscalculation on the Allied part that if they appeared sober and judicious or keep keep me out of it, isolationist in the case of America, or can I help you in the case of Stalin, that that would appease or pacify these fascist powers. And once that didn't happen, uh, they didn't understand what war was, they being Germany, Italy, and um, Japan, that war is a laboratory that tells you who actually is powerful. And it took 65 million people, 80% of them civilians, in 1945 to tell us what we should have known in 39, that it's a stupid thing to attack the British Empire, the United States, and the Soviet Union and put them all on the same side. Do you think we'll make it through this century, Victor, without a war on the scale of the wars that we saw in the 20th? I think so, because uh, they're all based, it's on, based on the perception of deterrence. I don't think that even the most naive American any longer believes that the United Nations, that's the promise of the League of Nations did after World War I, is going to adjudicate, you know, difference. It all depends on whether uh, the United States and the democracies are able to tell aggressors, most of them not as powerful as we are, that it would be a stupid thing and a cost-benefit analysis to try to get a war with us. And what I'm worried about North Korea is not an accident, but North Korea is not yet fully aware of the capability of the United States, and we've, that's because of 30 years of appeasement. But we have to make it clear to them that what, where they're going is going to lead to their destruction and hopes they'll stop. The Second World Wars is the book, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution. Great to have you, Victor. Thanks Thank for joining me in studio. Thank you for having me. Going to get into some Team Buck Speaks here in just a moment. Uh, very much enjoying my time out here at the... Hoover Institute on Stanford University's campus. It's a lovely place. I was joking around today that my experience of D.C. think tanks was generally pretty pretty bland uh, executive lunch food. I don't know, I don't know what you'd even call it, but you know, lots of kind of boring uh, turkey wraps and and salad that nobody really wanted to eat. Um, whereas here in Sanford, the food is great, the weather is pretty nice, and the campus is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and uh, very much enjoying my time out here. California, I, I understand why people live here, despite the politics, the taxes, and the um, the eco-based problems like the paper bags that you have to use. Because if you use plastic bags, the world would end or whatever. It's just nonsense. Uh, but I'm very much enjoying my time out here. It's been it's been great. So let's get into some Team Buck Speaks because I, I love that part of the show. We got Daniel writing in. Oh, and before I get into this, sorry there was a delay on the podcast, guys. Just a tech issue, a, a tech glitch that we had to fix. Podcast from yesterday should be up by now. It's good to go. And uh, tonight's podcast we will get up in much quicker order. So um, Daniel writes in with the following. Just listening to Friday's show if you ever need any veterinary advice, don't hesitate to ask. Been a vet for 13 years with cat, dog, zoo, exotic, and wildlife experience. Hope producer Amy's dog is okay. Shields high. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. If we ever do have a vet-specific question, we can certainly uh, reach out to you. We appreciate the offer. And yes, as I said yesterday, uh, the good news is that Amy's dog is fine. Um, but as many of you already know who have dogs... 
Dog runs can be a tricky business. People think their dog is friendly or they want to believe their dog is friendly and and well-behaved with other dogs, doesn't show aggressive tendencies. And they are sometimes wrong with very, very negative consequences, uh, often for other people's dogs. So uh, that's that. Uh, Thank you for writing in, Daniel. Paul writes, great job closing out the Brazil segment with the humorous, what happened? More of this, please. Uh, You cover a wide range of topics each broadcast. Perhaps you could do a summary of the topics covered and call it What Happened or What Happened Buck or What what Buck Says Happened. Yeah, the last one is out. Uh, Just some ideas, what uh, kind of what we did learn today. And that's from Paul. Well, Paul, I like that idea. Uh, Maybe the team will be able to pick up that as a project. For me, I'm uh, a little bit overwhelmed as it is with writing TV, radio, and the various projects that I am working on on the side, podcasts and whatnot. So, um, but it's a great idea. It's just a question of pulling it all together when I finish up the show here. And uh, we will, we will try. I can tell you, we will try. Tyler writes in, I'm really enjoying your Investor Hour podcast. I started listening to them a week ago or so and listened from the beginning. I'm on episode four or five. I'm wondering if you guys ever talk about derivatives and the role they play in our debt issue. Well, Tyler, I'm glad you enjoy. Speaking of uh, side projects, the uh, Stansbury Investor Hour podcast I'm a part of. If you're interested in finance or the markets at all, it's really must listening. I mean, they have phenomenal experts come on and I'm learning so much from the podcast because I'm not a markets econ guy. I'm, I'm, I'm not a financial services or just a finance guy in general or finance for those of you who like to go fancy. Uh, but the podcast is a great opportunity for me to learn, and it's the Stansbury Investor Hour. You can go to uh, InvestorHour.com for more on that. We have uh, writing in David. Uh, hey, Buck, another terrible day. Seems like I check Drudge too often to see if there's been some sort of attack. Unfortunately, I'm right more times than not recently. It isn't about guns. I firmly believe it's about the country being overprescribed with psychoactive drugs. This is going to be one of the biggest weeks of your young radio career. I have no doubt you will step up and offer the best objective insight possible. Shields high and God bless from David. Well, David, thank you uh, very much. I appreciate your kind words, and hopefully I am uh, living up to your expectations as an analyst and, and radio host uh, this week and, and every week. As to the uh, the psychoactive drugs that you're referring to, uh, I think the most commonly prescribed ones and don't quote me on this, and I'm not a doctor, right? So I think SSRIs and SNRIs, uh, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, those are very common. And uh, I think, was it selective nor, nor, I forget. I forget what the SNRI stands for, but SSRIs. Uh, there is, I think, unfortunately, a, a linkage in many people's minds between these drugs and uh, mass casualty incidents but that you have to think about the chain of causation here, or, or rather the, uh, the chain of correlation, which is that people who have a history of mental illness uh, may, are, are more likely to be on these drugs, and people who have a history of mental illness are the ones who are more likely to be involved in shootings. But this is a very, very small percentage, I mean, a, a, an infinitesimal percentage of the overall population that struggles with all different kinds of when people refer to mental illness, it's it is a spectrum, right? There are people who are, have a little bit of a little bit of OCD, or they struggle with a little bit of depression. They're fully functional, completely trustworthy. There are moms, dads, sisters, brothers, you know, girlfriends, boyfriends, best friends, coworkers. Uh, th- that's just 
reality is that a lot of people struggle with mental illness at at different levels of of seriousness. Um, and so it, it's kind of like saying, and, and I, I wish that the discussions around this would get a little bit more precise, because after a mass shooting, yeah, it's mental illness, but, you know, this guy in Texas was kind of like the, the bubonic plague of mental illness. And when you look at other individuals who are, who are dealing with mental health issues who take SSRIs or whatever the case, whatever drug they may be on, you know, it's like they got a cold and they're, they're fixing it, they're dealing with it, and they'll be, they'll be okay, but they're, they're addressing it. So we need to think of mental illness much more along the lines of how we think of uh, traditional physical illness and ailments, which is that, you know, there's there's a huge difference between uh, somebody having uh, Ebola and somebody having a, uh, you know, a, a common cold. And there are the same thing is true in the mind, in a sense, you can have a very low level of a mental illness that you're completely functional and fine and you're just dealing with it because you want to be comfortable and happy and and as well adjusted to your day-to-day environment as you can be Uh, and sometimes it's just cognitive therapy it's just talking uh, that helps people or it's just prayer you know or it's just a relationship with god i mean there's there's any number of or it's meditation or there's any number of ways that people deal with this but we need to we need to make sure that that's also out there too as we talk about the mental health aspect of this that Saying that somebody, saying that he was mentally ill, he was, this guy was severely mentally ill. And we shouldn't conflate any form of mental illness with this at all. Because, as I said, our, our family members, uh, many of us ourselves are struggling with whether serious or less serious versions of different mental illnesses. And you know, whether it's just you know, anxiety, depression, these are things that people deal with really at, at some level, in their, at some point in their life, at some level, everyone deals with this. Just a question of how and how serious it is. All right, so I guess that's where I will uh, close out the show for today. Please do uh, download Buck Sexton with America Now, the podcast on iTunes. BuckSexton.com slash store for gear. More from uh, pretty sunny Northern California. Until then, tomorrow, Shields High.